I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Chelsea Leyland is one of the bravest people I know. We first met when she DJed some paper parties. For a time, she was the fashion world's go-to DJ. Her striking good looks only added to the appeal of the great sets she put together to get the party started. Yet when we talked, I felt a distance I didn't quite understand, thinking that perhaps this is the kind of shade one gets from a graduate of a posh British boarding school. Well, now I know. Chelsea was an epileptic, a secret she shared with only a few close friends and family members. On anticonvulsant drugs, she masked her symptoms and struggled with her composure as lights flashed and music played. When she discovered CBD, her life changed. She weaned herself off pharmaceuticals and learned to manage her condition with a far less toxic medicine. Today, she's a CBD activist, telling her story and working to educate the world about the help that's available to the many millions of people afflicted with this condition, if only the medical profession got on board. The story goes even deeper than this. Chelsea's sister, who has a much more severe case, lives in England, but due to bureaucratic bullshit, she can't access any cannabis-related medicine. Separating the Strains, a documentary about her family's struggle with stigma and the medical profession, will make the case for CBD and epilepsy clearer than ever. Six-year-old Charlotte Figgy's viral video got the world's attention. CBD does work for epilepsy. Now Chelsea Leyland hopes to finish the job. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. Today my guest is Chelsea Leyland. Finally, ever since I found out you're a CBD activist, I've been curious to learn more. And I know we've been going back and forth like endlessly for months, but I wouldn't give up. Of course, I only knew you originally as a DJ part of the fashion scene, downtown personality. And then to see you involved in this other world made me curious, you know, to find out more about it, CBD, and particularly as an epilepsy treatment. Only a few short years ago, according to my research, around 2016, you decided to wean yourself off of pharmaceutical anti-seizure medicine and treat epilepsy solely with your CBD. So how did that happen? That must have been crazy. Wasn't it a risk and dangerous thing to do? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, and I know we were going back and forth for a while, so it's uh, it's nice to be reunited. So, yes, you know, it's funny. There are many different threads, I guess, to my story with epilepsy and anticonvulsants and then weaning off and, and now being fortunate enough to to treat my epilepsy with with cannabis and when I was first introduced to cannabidiol CBD uh, the only thing that I knew about it really was um, I'd seen a video someone had sent my family 
um, with Charlotte's Web, Little Charlotte Figgis, um, which is, uh, you know, a, a story of a little girl that had Dravet syndrome uh, and managed to treat her condition, her intractable epilepsy with cannabis. And this video went viral and was and was sent all around. And honestly, when I had when my family was sent that video and I watched it on YouTube, I didn't believe it quite simply and I think a lot of that was because I had experienced seizures myself I had an older sister uh, with severe epilepsy you know who has been having seizures since she was a baby so to see this video of a little girl you know with debilitating seizures managed to get them under control with a little bit of cannabis oil actually seemed quite unbelievable to me and there's so much fake news that goes around unfortunately in today's day and age that I didn't believe it. And the only other thing in my life that had touched upon cannabis apart from this is I had had a healing with a spiritual healer that I have seen for many years in New York. And after having a healing one day, she said to me, what do you know about medical cannabis? And by the way, at this point in my life, I had never tried any, I had never used cannabis as a medicine and I was still taking a lot of pharmaceutical drugs for my epilepsy. I was doing a little bit of epilepsy advocacy work. And after this healing, she said to me, what do you know about medical cannabis? And I said, nothing. And she said, you're going to be working a lot in that industry. And so, you know, cut to this moment when I was offered uh, a few drops of a tincture. And I just said yes. Um, one evening when I was out in a very casual way. That was, that was all I had as my sort of kind of baseline. And for me, it was instantaneous how I felt and it wasn't that I felt high but I felt as if someone had just plugged me into a power source I just felt like I feel really normal and balanced I feel like I felt many years ago before I was diagnosed and and I forgot to take my medicine that evening my traditional pharmaceuticals which for me was unheard of I never ever forgot to take my medicine because that could end up in a bad situation and having a seizure and so I woke up the next morning after this initial experience of trying it and my first thought was one of panic how did I forget to take my medicine last night I need to take my medicine now and then followed by this kind of spark of curiosity did I forget to take my medicine last night because I had a few drops of that cannabis oil and I thought no that's ridiculous and that was the beginning of my journey and uh, I began to obsessively research CBD and cannabis for epilepsy I bought myself a tincture uh, I had no idea obviously what I was buying or where to go or or anything and I began taking it and every day that I took it in conjunction with my pharmaceutical drugs, it was a new day of healing. And again, it wasn't that my state felt kind of altered. I just felt normal and balanced. And I did that for six months before I decided to slowly wean off my medication. And um, everybody around me told me that I was crazy when I decided to do that. And you know, I didn't have any support from my neurologist or any physician. My family was very concerned. I went about it as responsibly as I knew how. I, I did it very, very slowly. I'd watched my sister wean on and off anticonvulsants, you know, my whole life. So I had a rough idea of 
the safe way to do it. And um, after six months of, of taking it in conjunction with my meds, I, I weaned off slowly. And now I've been off medicine for two and a half years, around two and a half years, and haven't had one seizure since. It's just like incredible, right? The doctors, they just thought, what are you doing? This is dangerous for you. But didn't they respond to when they saw the results you were having? Didn't that change their minds at all? It's funny because only recently have I gone back to my neurologist. And, you know, I think that I did have a burning desire for a long time to sort of you know, stick it to him, <laughs> rub it in his face and be like, ha ha. Um, but I think because obviously this is surrounds something that is has been such a tough, challenging part of my life. You know, I didn't want to try to rub something in his face because of my ego or anything like that. I just felt so grateful, honestly, to be where I am and to be able to come off this medicine that for me was very challenging to be on and came with a lot of side effects and, and to be seizure-free and to be able to sleep well at night and to have less anxiety and all of the positive kind of attributes of, of, of what this medicine has done for my life that I think I just wanted to be in a very, very stable place and, and, and make sure I approached it in the right way, which I think is kind of being humble about it. But yes, I did quite recently and we filmed it for the documentary Separating the Strings. Oh, wow. That would be cool. I'd love to see that. So tell me, how's the documentary going? So Chelsea has been working on a documentary about your life, I guess, and just in general CBD and, and uh, epilepsy. Yeah, so the documentary is feature length and it is called Separating the Strains. And my team and I have been working on this film for the past two years. We just went into post-production uh, this film is explores the landscape of medical cannabis and has a specific focus on epilepsy and other neurodegenerative um, brain diseases. And at its core, yes, it's you know has a focus on on my experience with epilepsy with medical cannabis, but also that of my sister and and our um, family struggle with you know, not only epilepsy, but in trying to gain access to cannabis medicine for my sister. But why is, uh, she's in, in England, I guess, right? And it's illegal there still, or you can't get it, or why is it, or because of where she is under treatment that they won't allow you to bring it in? Is that, what is the reason? It, you know, it's such a complicated, unfortunately, you know, fragmented or splintered, framework that we as patients are desperately trying to navigate. There was a change in legislation a year ago now, um, and so cannabis, medical cannabis, um, is is legal. And so, you know, from afar, one might see it and say, okay, great, well, you know, they, they, they legalized, uh, you know, medical cannabis in the UK. And, and the reality is, a year later, to my knowledge, there are about two to four patients that have a prescription on the NHS, which is our you know public health care system. And then the rest of the patients that have access are through the privatized sector and are paying a you know absolutely absurd amount of money uh, for their medicine, 
I think it's around 1500 a month to try to explain it um, in a succinct way. The government was pushed into a corner whereby they had to make this change in legislation because of this mother, Charlotte Caldwell, who I have so much respect for. She's an incredible activist. Her little boy um, has intractable epilepsy. And she essentially pushed the government to the corner because she flew to Canada. She flew back with her little boy's medicine. And and she said, you know, this is a matter of life or death. You need to let me in with, with this medicine. And they seized the medicine you know, when she was coming into the country. And a few hours later, her little boy ended up in an, in the emergency room. And so they then had to deliver the medicine back to her. And so what happened was this change in legislation took place. Essentially, they dangled the carrot. They made patients think that, here we go, we've got access. But the issue was is that there was no framework in place. So, you know, doctors weren't educated. They had no idea how to prescribe it. There wasn't really medicine readily available. I mean, we're actually in the UK the largest exporters of medical cannabis because of uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, but this was a real problem. And so in terms of my sister's situation, she lives in full-time care, and, and my sister has what's known as intractable epilepsy, where it's drug-resistant. Drug so, And on a, you know, a bad day, we're looking at, a hundred sort oh of seizures a day. So the severity of her epilepsy versus mine is obviously very different. And um, and really what we're seeing in the UK right now is is patients like my sister that are the most vulnerable, that cannot go out and, and fight for themselves and make decisions for themselves, are the ones that are suffering and are the ones without access. And because my sister lives in a facility that is um, supported by the NHS system, until the NHS are on board then we can't gain access. Questions that people often ask me are, you know, why don't you put her on a, a flight and, you know, take her to Canada or the Netherlands or the US? And unfortunately, she's too unwell to fly. So that's, you know, obviously not an option for us. And then um, and then the other being, well, why don't you smuggle in medicine? Um, and I, you know, have a lot of cannabis companies that are kindly offering to send medicine. And the issue again there is, you know, she is under the care of a neurologist that works for the NHS and the NHS has to be on board and has to sign off on it. And so until this medicine, you know, becomes accessible for the people and patients that need it most, then patients like my sister, you know, remain kind of without access. What a shame. And, you know, given the whole history of cannabis, that research has been prohibited for oh, 80 years or 100 years <laughs> forever, practically. And given what we know about the plant or starting to learn about what the wonderful ways it could help us, uh, it's, it's uh, criminal, basically, in my opinion, to have that going on today still. I agree. And I, you know, I have to say that, in, in my opinion, this is a human rights issue. And it's just unfathomable when you think of the patients that are that could benefit from this medicine and do not have it as an option, are not even aware of it, and the damage that prohibition has caused. And in my sister's case, this is not to say that, you know, I always emphasize to people that cannabis is not a panacea. It's not going to cure or fix everyone. What works for one doesn't necessarily work for another. But really, I think the issue that I have is this is a safe medicine and I, I believe that it should come as a first option and it shouldn't be last resort. For example, 
a response that my family received from my sister's neurologist a few months ago, and we've been trying now for a very long time. So, you know, it's, it really is a fight that we are living day to day. And and the response he gave on on one of the points why it wouldn't be worth trying to prescribe my sister was that because she had drug resistant epilepsy and because she's tried nearly every anticonvulsant that's ever been produced um, and is available it would be like just trying another anticonvulsant. And that, for me, signifies so much because, you know, anybody that knows anything about cannabis knows that, you know, CBD works on completely different pathways to traditional anticonvulsants. So to say that it wouldn't be worth trying is, I think, right there, it's this, um, I mean, it's just a mixture. It's, it's, It's kind of ignorance. It's lack of education. It's stigma. Stigma. I mean, we have a history and, you know, billions of dollars have been spent to get people to think that it's a bad thing for you. And, you know, that sinks in. There's no way that you can be immune from all of that and that our culture and our lives today have been stigmatized that way. And every user feels that, you know, legitimate or otherwise. Um, so the documentary, though, could really help in this case because that gets the story out in a big way. Have you? I know you're you're part of the fashion world and the art world and the music world. Have you been able to enlist any of those people in this project? You know, I, I think that in terms of how I might have used my background in you know fashion art to benefit the film, and I, th- I think it's um, I think it's it's given me like an interesting platform to be able to you know, advocate for cannabis and to bring a bit of colour, I guess, to my advocacy. And I think also there are certain people, so, you know, contributors, like we managed to get Sir Richard Branson, we've got Mike Tyson, we've got a uh, Marvin Washington, former NFL player. So we've definitely got some fantastic names. And I think that it did help in trying to you know, make connections with these folks. <laughs> Help raise money too, I imagine. Oh, I would hope. We're, we're still trying to raise yeah, money. Yeah, that's ongoing. We, yeah, that's ongoing. We're nearly there. But, yeah, I think, you know, and I, I also just think you could look at me from the outside and I look completely normal and I think you'd never know. And that's the thing with epilepsy and obviously so many conditions. But I think, you know, it's it's making... Invisible conditions visible, and I, I always remind people it's you know just because we can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and we never know how people are suffering, and that's the case for so many mental health conditions. But I think people can see me, and and I and I obviously you know I, I look completely normal, and I think you know for the most part I live a, a very normal life, and I'm very fortunate. I've I've had many struggles around battling with this condition, but. In comparison to my sister, I, you know, I'm very, very lucky. But I think that, I think our situation, given that we are two sisters and everybody can relate to the idea of like a sibling's love for the other. And I think that perhaps seeing one sister with access, essentially due to my postcode and the other without due to hers, I think that it's a strong case for allowing people to understand the absurd nature of this issue that we're fighting. Yes, I I think film is a really great format for that because it gets out to many people and finally they can sit and pay attention to a subject, especially now documentaries or people are paying a lot more attention to those. Did you use uh, your music 
abilities in the film? Did you score it any particular way? Have you thought about the music at all? Very much so. So we're working with a fantastic composer. About original music? So you're doing original music? Yes, we are. And we are actually working with a number of musicians that struggle with autism and epilepsy, different composers. Wow. Yeah. Adding adding layers to this story. Adding layers. And I think really trying to, I guess, allow or bring our audience into the world of epilepsy in this kind of sensorial way, you know. So it's just how can we... How can we make our audience understand really what it feels like to live with this condition outside of just presenting the facts and the history? And I think that obviously using sound is incredibly um, powerful. There are so many different ways that epilepsy manifests depending on the individual. And, you know, for example, someone like myself that's light sensitive, I, I think that, you know, we can understand that with light, but unless you're somebody that is photosensitive, it can be a challenge. And I think that sound is so powerful to really kind of, you know, obviously generate these feelings and emotions in, in, in people. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. We, we plan to launch that, um, you know, as a separate soundtrack as well. Um, and so we're really just beginning that, that process now. And so, yeah, that's, that's definitely, I think, an element that's um, very, very exciting. So, uh, yeah, since you mentioned, and I really wanted to talk about it anyway, that, um, you know, people don't know what it's like. So before you became an activist, before you even knew that this was something possible for you, uh, when you arrived in New York as a young woman, a young girl, right, 18, 19, how old were you? I was 19, 1920, yeah, when I moved here. And what year was that? It was in 2000-something. Oh, gosh. Well, You're testing my math now. your age away <laughs> backwards. But it was in the 2000s. It was a long time ago. The 2000s? Oh, yeah, it was in the 2000s. I'm thinking it was like 2009 around then. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and you came here to be an actress. I did. So, and at the Strasbourg School, right, which is like... Um, what do they call that? Method acting. Method acting, which is like Becoming. Marlon Brando yeah. and like stuff like that, right? Becoming the character. Becoming the tree. I am yeah. a tree. <laughs> uh, do you ever watch Barry? Do you, do you know that TV show? No. Uh, it's about this uh, Bill Hader. This used to be an SNL comedian, very funny man, who is a contract killer, but somehow winds up in this acting class. So there's a big, lots of it is about acting and but seems to be somewhat like a method school as well. So, you know, so let's think about that. You went to the Strasbourg School. You have you have this condition that you have to manage. <laughs> How do you do it? You know, because it's uh, difficult anyway, right? And to combine it with something of, of that nature. Yeah, it's the, that's a really interesting question. And I think also it's funny because I, 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 I don't often think about I guess, my experience in time at Strasbourg that often. And I've been thinking about it recently because I, due to my advocacy work, I do a lot of public speaking lately. And I had a conversation with a whole bunch of people about, you know, the nerves that surround public speaking the other day. And I thought about it and, and I was like, well, you know, maybe because I often think, oh, I wish I'd studied this or I wish I'd studied that. And obviously I'm not acting today. So it's easy for one to sometimes think, Oh, I wasted time or I shouldn't have done that. But no, I was I was recently thinking, you know, that that probably gave me some good training for my for my work now. But it, it was a very t 
colourful and textured time in my life. I think that certainly my health was not where it is today. I was also at a point in my life where I didn't talk about it. I mean, for very but long. But how was, I mean, physically, how did you feel when you have that, you know, condition? Well, that makes it know, difficult to be, you know, engaged with the world. And let me just say an anecdote on my part, because you were worked at several parties that paper were through, and I would come by and say hello. And somehow I always felt that there was not, like, the kind of reaction that I might, like, get from someone who has that. Just And so, you know, so I always just filed it away, whatever. But then now when I started, like, reading about you and hearing about some of your experiences and how it felt to be why that was the case, that I actually felt something that was real, it wasn't just, like, my imagination... Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Do you do you mean sort of what when you was that was it like a, a vacancy? You think? Yes, kind of that. You kind of like at this. You know, you were working. You yeah, know, so yeah. there's all kinds of reasons yeah, yeah. that I could say, oh, she's busy, she's focused, yeah, yeah. she's this, she's that. But I mean, I think in many, just many different ways, because it's hard with epilepsy. Because it's, I could go for a year without having what's called a tonic-clonic seizure, which are the, the larger seizures where you fall to the ground and, and, and kind of lose consciousness and, and convulse. But it still affected me, uh, you know, most days. And I think in terms of kind of how that was, I think, I mean, I, like I was saying before, I think, first of all, not talking about something. So I didn't talk about it. So I, I think that... So most people didn't know who were your um, friends no, or... I think my boyfriend at the time knew no I never spoke about it it was always just trying to be normal quote unquote normal <laughs> <laughs> and and actually not not realizing what in terms of the way I was feeling whether that was um you know sort of deep depression and anxiety or irritability or just memory loss crazy mood swings meltdowns you know, insomnia. I mean, I used to take my medicine in the evening and then I'd be so hyperactive I couldn't sleep for hours. And actually, that is probably the worst thing for someone with epilepsy because sleep deprivation causes seizures. So, I mean, it's so hard to kind of capture the way that it affected me in, in all of these different ways. But I really believe that when I began to kind of own my condition and sort of make friends with it, that everything for me became a lot easier. And, and of course, finding cannabis and you know, being able to come off the medicine that was causing terrible side effects for me. But, you know, I mean, being a DJ, first of all, I yeah. was on an aeroplane a lot. And that, you know, I can't even, even today, and you know, I'm taking a more like efficacious medicine, but I can't explain to you how much it affects me to wake up early in the morning. I mean, that can completely screw up my day. It affects my memory. You know, I might be, if you said to me, say I had like an hour less sleep last night, this podcast would be harder for me because you'll ask me a question and my concentration might go out the window. It's not that I'm not li listening. I'm desperately trying to, to, to listen and focus, but it's this concentration span, I might go to answer something and I might mean to say, I get words muddled a lot of the time. So I might mean to say genuinely and I might say generally, you know, I might get set my alarm and, and, and mean to set it for, I don't know, 8am and set it for a different, I get things back to front and muddled. But 
flying around the world with epilepsy. Um, and time zones. Yeah, and, and I, I used to drink and party back then. I, I don't now. I think that also massively affected my health and impacted my health. It was good for your business, though. Yeah, probably was. <laughs> it's probably why I'm not DJing as much anymore. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, and also drama school. I mean, you started off on that point. I kind of felt like I went on a tangent. But um, I think I, I, I was very... Um, I had no balance to my life. I, I mean, I, I'm still someone that I think is always constantly sort of battling um, or trying to find balance mentally and, and struggling with kind of mental health issues. And a lot of that is obviously now I understand to be to do with my epilepsy. But I was very young and I just found it all pretty tough. I was away from my family. I'd grown up in, with a very tight family because of my sister, obviously. And I think and this is something that I, I know is now a, a very common trait with epilepsy, but it's this feeling of like you can't cope because it's you're constantly living in fear of your next seizure. You're constantly, you know, kind of alert and, and just being scared of, you know, small things like flashing lights or not getting enough sleep or, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's such a complex Sounds condition. overwhelming to me. To yeah, overwhelming is a good one. So how about music? How did, What role, if any, did that play? Was that able to sort of calm you at all? Did, is there any connection between your condition and your music, the, what you like to play or don't like to listen to? And just in general, how did you get into DJing and why did you even get into it? I got into DJing, um, well, I had been asked by um, Ben Watts, who's a very well-respected fashion photographer. Photographer and happens to be the brother of Naomi Exactly, Watts, right? exactly. And I had made friends with him when I was young and moved to New York. And um, he used to have a lot of people out to his house in Montauk on the weekends. And um, I remember we went back to his house um, one night and I... I, I, I think I was putting, I mean, I didn't even have an iPhone then. I, was, I remember I had a BlackBerry. I was putting music on. DJing on a BlackBerry? Wow. No, I wasn't DJing on a BlackBerry. <laughs> I, was, yeah, I, put, I remember putting on an iPod and it was like an after hours party. And he was like, I really like your music taste. Can you DJ my July 4th Shark Attack party? It was called Shark Attack. He said, it's out here on the beach. And I said, I, d I don't know how to DJ. He said, yeah, you do. Just bring another iPod, bring two iPods, and you can crossfade from one song to the next. And I was just like, no, this is ridiculous. I thought he couldn't be being serious. And then, you know, time rolled around, and he was like, are you going to DJ? And anyway, I did, I ro rolled up with my two iPods, and, and it was a really fun vibe. And at the time, my boyfriend said to me, I think that you should learn to DJ properly. He said, I think, I think you'd be really good at it. I think you've got a good knowledge of music, and I think that... You should learn to DJ, but learn properly. Learn to play with turntables. Don't just be another one of these female DJs that's playing off of iTunes. And so I started taking classes with a with a DJ, DJ Vibe, and and, it, and I, a lot of it was the right time as well. That there weren't that many female DJs, and especially not in the fashion world. And I think that. Um, you know, maybe I kind of brought a bit of my London vibe over here to New York. I played a lot of dancehall reggae. There weren't a lot of, um, you know, white female DJs playing that kind of music. And um, you know, in terms of kind of, you know, how did that influence my epilepsy? I mean, I think being a DJ was and is a very healing profession in that you are taking people on a journey and 
you're in the driving seat and it's such an incredible responsibility and it's such an incredible feeling when you get it right and you take people on this emotional journey. I mean, music is this language that we all speak and it just triggers so many different things within people. And what's funny for me is certainly in the last few years as, as my whole life has begun to calm, you know, and I could, I could say that that's also that I'm now in homeostasis because of my my cannabis medicine and my more in balance. And in terms of kind of the gigs that I like to play now, you know, for me, the ideal gig is, is doing a yoga set and taking people on an emotional journey that way, on a more of a kind of spiritual journey. I think that DJing clubs as I did when I was younger and, 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 and being more of the bringing the party vibe, so to speak, is like not something that I feel like I'm in flow with as much as I used to and I think that's just because of where I am so I think you know it's interesting music I mean something I remember getting in in a car when I was in my teens and the, someone would turn the music up really loud and I would often have this feeling of like my brain wanted to break into little pieces and I would kind of be faking that I was enjoying it and I always remember thinking like I wish they would turn it down and only when I began to kind of understand epilepsy and how it affects the brain and how and and these other neurogenitive um, conditions how you know sensitive it makes you to light and sound and and you know loud sounds could I actually understand that that was to do with my condition and it made everything easier so I think just like sound and the way it impacts and music and I think now I'm in a point where I'm often like trying to nourish myself in a way that's calming so I'm definitely in a stage of my life where I'm drawn to music that is perhaps, you know, lower beats per minute than I was before. <laughs> well, that, so that makes me uh, ask two questions. One, your music education to begin with, you know, like how were you exposed to this music that you eventually, you know, became part of you, who you are? And then how, what are, you know, some of the music you would play at a yoga session, what that might sound like? So in terms of... Uh, music education. I went to a very creative artistic school in England called Beadells, and I think that music was certainly something that was um, encouraged. I didn't, I mean, I, I, I studied you know, piano and clarinet and everything when I was younger, but I, I don't really know how much that influenced DJing. My father was um, always, uh, you know, massively into music. I think I was, you know, somewhat influenced by by him and he's a real character he ran the playboy club uh in london in the 70s so i think he was wow. always kind of <laughs> swinging 70s yeah oh wow he was very much but you weren't born yet i wasn't no but wow. i just feel like you know i just remember being a kid and my dad was putting things on and being like this is what we used to dance to um and then i think um but was it blues or was it history history of music? Was it well, I, contemporary I think, of the moment? I, I think that's kind of in a nutshell to say what I brought. And I, I, I hate putting myself into a box, but, you know, I guess kind of the style of open format was like not really following any rules. So, you know, being able to play a Johnny Cash track and then play Biggie Smalls after, you know, it was just kind of being quite free with it. And I think that, that was something that the fashion world appreciated at that time. It was like, no, I'm I'm not a hip hop DJ. I'm 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 not a deep house DJ. I'm open format and I'm playing for the specific crowd. And so, and it, you asked me about yo. Yeah, what yoga. would that soundtrack be like? What oh, would you play? Again, I don't know. Such a mixture of 
of music that I would play. And, and, I, and again, it's hard to kind of put that in a box because it's everything from like Max Richer classical to, you know, Nicola Cruz and Nicholas Jar and sounds that are a little bit more like worldly and, and perhaps tribal. And I think I play, again, a real mixture of uh, genres. And I, you know, I, I always try. I'm, whenever anyone says to me, what type of DJ are you? I I, I kind of repel that question because I'm like, I don't ever, I never want to be put in a box. I think that I, I jump all over the shop with genres without making myself sound like a terrible DJ. Yeah, well, that's great if you can make it hang together somehow, right? That's Not what it just is. just like a random selection. And without sounding like a wedding DJ. Yeah. <laughs> those are great hits. Play those hits. Yeah. So do you think there is uh, any difference between American music and, and British music? Or you've traveled all over the world at this point as well. Do you get influenced by other cultures and, um, you know, feel that contributes to your whole music sensibility? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, for example, I said I like to play a lot of dance hall before, and I think growing up in London, we obviously have a big Jamaican community there, and that influence and, you know, going to carnival every year, Notting Hill Carnival, and, and listening to, like, drum and bass and dance hall. And I think, obviously, New York has everything. You can really find everything here. But, you know, in terms of kind of the language that people speak, the music language, I think, I mean, if you go out here for the most part or the radio comes on, you're hearing a lot of hip-hop. When I think of New York, I think about hip-hop. It's kind of pop music at this point, right? Pop music, yeah. It's... But I think certainly being able to travel is incredibly uh, beneficial as a DJ because you get to hear what everybody's listening to and it is completely different. I've definitely had periods in my life where I felt like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm really into deep house right now, playing more electronic music and, you know, spending a lot of time in Mexico and getting to experience DJs. I, I spent a lot of time in Tulum and, and, and getting to party and going to these incredible jungle parties and hearing DJs play music that I hadn't really heard before that had a real kind of world tribal influence. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely, it definitely worked in my favor, I think, growing up and being able to, I mean, I always say that, like, Brits have well-lubricated ears and that they definitely listen to everything, I, I, I think. I mean, that's a real generalization, but I felt like, um, I feel like I can have more freedom when I DJ in the UK versus here. I feel like people appreciate good music, whereas sometimes I can be playing a set in New York and if if if, if whatever I'm doing is not working, it's like just go to hip hop. That's oh, it. Right. You know? Yeah. And I don't think that always works in, in England. I think I think you can you can play around if you get it right and, and, and jump from genre to genre a bit if you're playing good music. Yeah, I definitely think I brought brought sort of some of my kind of English roots over here in terms of kind of, yeah, music influence. Are you able to keep these two worlds separate, the music and the CBD now? So when you go out to travel or do a gig somewhere, do you feel like you have to also address that all the time or is it keeping those two things separate? It's funny because I think, you know, for the longest time I felt, and kind of before this journey for me, I, I felt quite uncomfortable in my skin when I was just a DJ. And that might sound strange, but I think that for me, getting uncomfortable was actually the catalyst of, of, of 
for, for change. And I think a lot of that maybe was rooted in the fact that I'd grown up with my sister and had this, you know, really challenging issue in my life um, that was um, the making of me, so to speak. But I didn't feel like I was putting any 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 of that energy back in or or maybe I needed to give back something. You felt guilty in some respect probably as well, right? Definitely, definitely. And I think I was living this very glitzy, glamorous lifestyle, getting to play for, you know, Fendi and Vogue and Chanel and travel the world and stay in nice hotels. And, you know, I, I'm, I've always been grateful for that incredible experience. And, and, you know, but I think a lot of it was there was this my inner child that was calling out to be kind of nourished. And I think a lot of that was, I need to do something with purpose. I need to do something that feels mission driven and, and, and that wasn't being fulfilled. And when I had this experience with the plant and it just obviously made me want to share my experience and I think be able to help other people that were suffering in the same way that I had been suffering. And so it's funny because I kept thinking when I was uncomfortable, you know, as I said in my skin, I was like, I just need to get out of the fashion and art world. I, I need to stop teaching. I need to do something completely different. And I think what I didn't realize at that time was actually it was about combining, you know, both of these different sides of myself. And that's kind of where I'm at today where, you know, I'm so fortunate enough that I had this or, you know, I have this this music career that has allowed us, me to have a stronger platform to speak from and, and and actually it's bringing these two worlds together but you know in terms of kind of like negative aspects about it I mean you know again it's, it comes back to stigma like everything and it's um I think uh, not so much today but certainly when I began oh of course you take drugs you're a DJ <laughs> you know and I think for me that was challenging being able to navigate that because I suddenly was like hey you know I want to be taken seriously you know this is something that impacted my life this is something that you know, I'm really fighting for in terms of kind of fair patient access. This is, this is not about what's on on my playlist tonight, which party I'm DJing, or you know what the designer that makes my handbag. This is something that for patients like my sister is is about life life and death. And so I think there was that was hard to navigate, and maybe a lot of that was to do with my own insecurities. Honestly, maybe it was, you know, and I think that's something that I still battle with, which is just like is somebody taking me seriously? And I think you just got to keep moving, haven't you? And um... Well, we're very lucky <laughs> and fortunate that you have. And I know, you know, a lot of people appreciate your work and your service to this, to this cause. And um, thank you very much for being my guest today, Chelsea Leyland. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, Brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm-hmm.